And you know, while there are publicly traded hospital systems in the United States, there are also a lot of nonprofit hospitals. And I had a nonprofit hospital client uh, back when I was a banker, and and they have to provide care, and and this comes out of their pocket. And so you are transferring what should be a public burden onto an industry burden, and then further on a nonprofit <laughs> um, level. And. How can hospitals survive that, you know, if they're nonprofit hospitals when you have a pandemic? Welcome back to the Tell It Like It Is podcast, where powerful, passionate women from around the world tell it like it really is. I'm your host, Cassandra Ray, recording today, yes, once again, from my kitchen as we are in lockdown 2.0 here in London. This week's guest is Jenny Dowling-Rowe, co-founder and chief financial officer for Headwaters Volatility Solutions, a pioneering asset management firm that manages customized volatility portfolios for investors. Don't worry if you don't know what that means. I didn't either. In this wide-ranging conversation, Jenny and I talk about being one of the only women in the room again and again and again. What it's been like launching a business as a husband and wife team returning to work after a nine-year career break, and then choosing to travel over 150,000 miles a year with a newborn in tow, how she was shaped by her early Me Too moments, and much, much more. Jenny, welcome. Thanks for having me, Cassandra. Tell me about how you decided to start a company in volatility management. How did that... Um, how did that journey happen, particularly after a nine-year career break? So my husband and I started the company together and he had spent um, his career trading volatility in a hedge fund setting. And as we were talking about careers and interests, and I was looking to get back into the workforce again after nine years off raising my two older boys who are now nine and 12, um, you know, we, we've ta- talked a lot about this idea of how you deliver volatility mandates to institutional investors. And we came up with a plan to take volatility investing out of the hedge fund realm and deliver it through separately managed accounts. And over a period of months, we developed the idea and went to investors. And five months later, we were funded and moving out to California to sit side by side with our lead investor group. Uh, so it happened very fast. Um, it was very exciting. And all of a sudden we were thrust into it. Um, and that was around July of 2017. So here we are three years later. And you know, we saw in the beginning of the year, February 24th marked the beginning of you know, a 30% down movement in the S&P. And that mm-hmm. really was the moment that showed how the strategy works and delivering it through a separately managed account, meaning not commingled in a multi-strategy fund where the returns of this particular strategy are combined with the returns of other strategies um, seemed to be a more pure play for the, the aim of this strategy, which is to uh, reduce market risk. And again, this particular strategy, a long volatility strategy is designed to pay off when you have a large drawdown, you know, for example, in the equity market that happens mm-hmm. between February 24th and March 24th. Yeah. I mean, in, in such a, 
Look, you haven't you haven't picked like the least stressful, um, <laughs> <laughs> the least stressful industry to to launch a business in, um, and you're doing that together with your husband. Yes. How do you manage the just the day to day stresses and ups and downs of of this business of starting any business, let alone this business, in such a volatile <laughs> at time? Moment, right at this moment, with everything else. Well, I say first and foremost, we're good communicators. So we, you know, at the, at the end of the day, and then at the beginning of the day, we assess. What, you know, what have we done? What ne- needs to be done over the next day, the next week, the next month? And we really kind of piece it out like that. And it's not a formal <laughs> sit-down meeting between two people. It's just, you know, work never stops and work never starts. It's just continuous. Um, but yeah. we really come back together frequently to check in. Um, and it's, you know, on the business front and on, on the personal front. And so I think that um, having that continuous dialogue uh, really makes it possible uh, because if we were off on our own little islands doing our pieces, you know, me covering the operational side of the business and and my husband covering the investing side of the business, we would really um, have a hard time linking those two things if we weren't mm. constantly talking to each other about what's going on. Mm. It strikes me, I, I interviewed a, um, a woman who is co-CEO of a company in um, in Seattle, and she said that when her business partner and she decided to launch the business before they started, when they were just doing the operational agreement, they actually went and saw a therapist um, to really lay down the, the uh, you know, the kind of communications, beliefs about money and, you know, all, all that sort of thing. And she said how, how much a business partnership is like a marriage, actually, um, and takes the same yes. things to, to be successful and to thrive, which is, as you've just said, you know, constant communication, respect, and all those things that, that we know. Absolutely. And when we, when we, you know, laid out the structure of how this business would work, we were fortunately both doing it in the same way, very transactionally, um, mm. you know. With you know a, a very strong group of attorneys, um, thought through the possibilities and planned for those ahead of time. Um, for example, what if one partner wants to leave, or what if we have an opportunity to sell the business, or so on and so forth? So we thought about these structures very carefully and just um, you know it's almost like writing a will. Uh, what happens mm. if? You know, I mean, and, you know, in a will, it's an eventuality in a business. It's a possibility you have to think about. And so to be transactional ahead of time and not be emotional about it, I think is the best way to approach it. Um, and, you know, then you, if these possibilities come to fruition, then there is a set plan that you follow. And everybody understands that from the very beginning. Mm. Now, with your first two children, you took nine years off. But am I right in thinking that you had a child just before you started this business and then have had another child since? Yes. Um, so I did. I took nine years out to raise my two boys, like I said, who are nine and 12 now. Uh, but I did stay engaged. Uh, I, I worked um, as a volunteer and, and had two board seats, one for a nature conservancy property um, out in the Hamptons, and then another which was... a is a very grassroots organization that helps uh, military families during their deployments. So I stayed engaged and it was a way for me to, you know, be active and, and, and 
work with two groups that I am really passionate about. Uh, but I did have um, a child while, <laughs> while we were starting this business and getting it up and running. And she's now two. And then we had another child. So she's one. Um, so oh, we two and have, one. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so you had, yes, yeah. Wow. Yeah. The, you know, the added challenge of raising a blended family and also a young family um, while we're raising our young business. So, uh, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's just constant. It's the brain bunch makes it look easy and it's not. <laughs> and sometimes it's, um, you know, chaotic, but, um, you know, it's been really wonderful. And I just think how fortunate we are to have this opportunity to do these things all at once, but it just goes to prove you can't do it all, all at the same time. Um, mm. Some things have to give and, you know, there has to be sort of this, um, I wouldn't even call it balance because sometimes I, it feels out of balance, but you know, some, some things you just have to pull back on and some things you have to really push on. And so it's, it's an example of why we're here in Ohio now with, you know, helping with my mom. And, you know, I realized I'm, I'm flying way too much. I was, I, I've been on airplanes this entire year and in a normal year, I travel about 145,000 miles a year, which is absurd. But this year I was up to something like 50,000 miles by the summer. Um, traveling, you know, for, for work and for family reasons. And so it was time. I just said, okay, let's take this opportunity because first of all, it felt like everybody was leaving California. Um, but you know, with the ability to work remotely, let, let's just go and let's take some time. So I'm pushing ahead a little bit on the family thing because that's where I'm needed right now. Um, but mm-hmm. I can still, I can still do work and, um, and, and navigate both things again, not perfectly at every step, but you know, it's the effort, I think. Um, I, I feel I'm trying to to balance these needs at the same time. And so this is one of the sacrifices coming, um, you know, coming to be present here. And, and I wouldn't sacrifice probably isn't the right word because it's actually a really nice place to be. Um, mm. it, it feels like coming home. And I, I am from the East Coast originally, but I love the Midwest. I love how kind and friendly and welcoming people are. And it's it's been a really nice journey. Yeah, there really is something about that Midwestern hospitality that is, Absolutely. that is, you know, I think especially always it's, it's warming, right? But I think especially at a time like this, when we're, we're looking for ways to connect, um, because we have so few ways to connect, you know, that we, that we are used to, um, I can imagine that is a really, really lovely place to be. What is your support system look like? to have four children, blended family, two kids under the age of three, um, and, you know, be running, co, co-running this, mm-hmm. um, this successful business. It takes a village, as Hillary Clinton said. It's, it's not easy. Um, we do have childcare in place, but one of the unique things about being an entrepreneur and being in charge is that when you get called away to travel for work, you can take your child with you. And Mm. it's been a really fun experience doing that. Um, Because even though, you know, my my children are very young, I feel like I'm modeling the behavior that I want them to have, you know, to, Mm. to be able to weave together their personal demands and their, and their work demands or professional demands. So, you know, about a year and a half ago, we were invited to sponsor a derivatives conference in Hong Kong. And 
being that we worked together, we didn't feel great about leaving our then one-year-old for an extended period of time to make the trip from California to Hong Kong for a couple of days. So we brought her with us. And, you know, we've done that several times. You know, we went to another derivatives conference in uh, Barcelona and, and we sort of made the tour through Europe, um, meeting with investors and, um, you know, business partners. And we were able to, I'll say cobble together because it's not easy, uh, a patchwork quilt of child care at the moments when we needed to be away in meetings. So mm. it's, it's a really fortunate position to be able to, to do that. And I recognize, you know, if you're working in a large institution and you're, you know, you need to go to a conference or go meet with clients, you may not necessarily be able to do that, but it, it is one of the benefits of, of being an entrepreneur and being able to make those decisions. So the way that we've done it is um, to call ahead to the hotel or to find uh, a babysitting service or, a, you know, someone who will send a nanny your way. So um, we've, we've done it in, you know, now cities all over the world, um, you know, even in Australia and uh it's a little nerve wracking leaving your child in a, a different city that you're not used to with, um, you know, somebody else, but uh, we've made it work. And it's, it's been a really fun way to bring together um, our personal life and, and our work life around the world. So we, we've traveled literally around the world from Hong Kong you know, a year and a half ago when our daughter was uh, not even a year old, actually. Uh, we left from Hong Kong, went to Colombo and Sri Lanka, Muscat, Oman, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, Dublin, Ireland, and San Francisco. And it was really a, a, a phenomenal experience to see all of those places um, and, and to do our work at the same time. So I'm kind of in awe of this story. Um, I'm going to take a point of personal privilege here and just kind of go off on the, just go down this rabbit hole for a minute. Because when I got pregnant with Leo, I was like, listen, <laughs> I'm going to throw this kid on my back and we're going to keep up this lifestyle <laughs> that we've always oh, yeah. had. I'm, I'm definitely a wanderlust. <laughs> yes. uh, my my work is super international. And then he came along and I was like, um, no, definitely not going to do that because you need your naps. <laughs> because you need your nap or you are a little tiny terrorist. And so I guess you're going to stay home and have your naps, um, which was a whole different than I've been very open on this podcast before about my challenges with trying to pump while traveling oh, yeah. and pumping to hell. It's an absolute yes. hell. Everybody, every woman should know that. Do it if you have to. It's every woman's choice, but do not expect it to be easy or pleasant. Um, and so it just, I mean, how did you... How did it was your daughter? She was one years old. Like, yeah, did, was she just a champion sleeper? Oh no, <laughs> she was. She is probably. I, and between my husband and I, we have six children. Probably the worst sleeper of the six. Um, it's it's not easy. And you know, I, I guess I'm sort of glossing over all of these nuances about bringing a child on very lengthy international trip, um, like we took and, and the others we've taken. She's a terrible sleeper. And we just accepted mm. that, you know, traveling across these time zones, I think we did that trip in 10 days. Um, yeah. We just, we were up in the middle of the night. I mean, I remember taking my daughter out of the hotel room in Muscat and walking on the beach um, in the middle of the night with her because she wouldn't sleep. She was, you know, more or less on California time. Uh, so we, we knew that. We knew that going into it. Mm. 
finance is not known to be the most welcoming industry for women. And volatility within finance is one of the worst of the worst. Mm -hmm. How have you found... I, I shy away on this podcast too much from talking to women about being women because I think you know there's plenty of space for that elsewhere. But I think you are in such a specialized part of the industry yes. that so few women can talk about their experience yes. <laughs> within the volatility side that I think it's really valuable to hear that. Yes, I, I think you're absolutely right. And it started out as sort of a joke that I would wear a flashy yellow suit to the first derivatives conference just so that people would remember meeting me. And then I got there and I thought, well, they're going to remember me because I'm one of three women in the room. <laughs> you know, I mean, you, yeah. you just can see it traveling around in this very tiny circle of volatility um, investing. And it's true. They're just, there really are so few women, but the women who are in this industry, I am absolutely blown away by it. They're fantastic people, first and foremost, um, incredibly smart. And, and they're just really inspiring individuals. And so I think if we can just attract more women to this teeny little corner of the investing world, um, you know, we'll make a change and it'll be, a, it, it has to happen over time. It has to be generational. And I think that one of the um, reasons that there's so few women is because it's a very quant heavy um, line of work. And mm. so we need, we need to encourage, you know, again, it's generational. We need to go back to schooling and encourage more women to, to stay in a math track because, you know, in school, we all have exposure to math, but it's continuing, you know, the advanced math courses um, into college, into graduate school to posi position them for success in this business. Um, and, and it's going to take some time. What did you, what was your undergrad in? Economics and Spanish. And then I went on okay. to graduate from business school. Um, so mm -hmm. I did have enough of the math um, to understand it, but there is, you know, this, uh, this track sort of in, in investing that is much more quant focused and, and data focused. And so mm -hmm. I, I have the benefit of bringing to this particular job um, a, a lot of uh, quantitative modeling skills from my prior jobs, um, which has helped me tremendously in this role. Hmm. I, I think it's such an important point about, you know, capturing, capturing the interest when people are young. I've, yes. um, I've been, you know, I've told people many, many times, um, at some point, maybe around seventh or eighth grade, I, had a math teacher who taught math in a way that I didn't really understand. And so I decided I was no good at it. And I was very, very good at talking my way out of problems. And so somehow managed to basically talk my way out of like my required math credit in college and, <laughs> and just take absolutely, I took to algebra two in high school, didn't take, and, and yet I got into a good university. I mean, I have no idea how I achieved these things now looking back, but somehow I did. And then I decided to go to business school. And of course, you know, you have to take the GMAT, the entrance GMAT, exam to, to get right. into business school, which is highly quantitative and, um, had to get, you know, I had to take take special classes to do fairly well on that. Yes. And it was only when I had that teacher helping me study for the GMAT that I was like, well, 
I'm not bad at math. I'm quite good at math, actually. Uh, you know, because if you're good at logic, I mean, you know, there's different other things, but I was, you know, there's definitely better people than me because there's people that have been doing it for many, many years. But I thought, wow, when I was 12, I decided something was true and I never tested it again until I was 27. You know, I, I can echo that sentiment exactly. And all it takes is a teacher who seems to not believe in you or, Mm. you know, a couple of bad math tests to really turn you off math or any subject really. Um, and I was fortunate in that I, you know, I had a really, um, great role model in my dad. Um, I mean, he's Mm. a PhD from MIT, so you can't get a better tutor than that. Um, and he sat down with me and he worked through these problems, you know, in middle school and high school. And then in college, I had a a couple of really great calculus professors and I just enjoyed it so much. But I agree with you coming back years later to study for the GMAT. I really proved to myself that I was much more capable in math than I had ever given myself credit for. Um, And I really, really enjoy sitting down with my son now to help him with his math homework. And I'm always Mm. asking him, oh, Um, because I think it's it's (laughs) fun and, and, you know, math is one of those things you, know, you use it in everyday life, of course, and I use it every day in my job. Um, but it's it's a continual process, and I think um, the my relationship with math has really evolved over time. And and I I so appreciate that I had um, a great tutor in my dad and people that believed in me throughout my education that I, I could do this, and of course I could be good at it. Any anybody can be good at, at mm. math. You just have to be shown how to do it in the right way, so that you believe in yourself and you can. Do it answer. Yeah. Okay. I want to switch gears a little bit and move to our Tilly round. Um, You may have heard about this. These are just questions that um, are quick fire round questions, but they're not really quick fire because they can go fast or slow. Okay. What's one lesson you've learned the hard way? I I have a hard time saying no to opportunities Mm. in life, right? It's, you know, because I think, oh, well, if somebody's asked me to do something, of course I should out of obligation or um, because it's it's a great opportunity. And and I stayed too long <laughs> in my internship um, in business school between my first and second year. And I was interning for an international spirits company in London. And I think um, they didn't quite know what to do with me. Um, they didn't <laughs> quite have a exact job description and a goal in mind for my eight weeks there. And I really, you know, I got through a couple of weeks of the internship and thought to myself, well, I don't really know that they're using me to my full capacity. And the problem is then how will they view me at the end of the internship? Because of course the goal is to get a full-time job offer. And I, I called my dad who I, rely on for career advice, you know, at various points. And, and, you know, I was raised to never be a quitter. You just, my family, you don't quit, you commit to things and you see it through and it might not turn out the way that you had expected, but anything is a learning opportunity. And so I called my dad and I said, Look, I just don't really feel like I'm contributing here. And because I wasn't sure what they wanted from me. I don't think they knew what they wanted from me. And he said, I think you're wasting your time. And mm. I think you should 
politely thank them for the opportunity and and you should leave because and, and I think the message, you know, even though it was unstated, was you are more valuable than that and you know you can contribute um somewhere else, elsewhere, you know, and 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 apply your talents elsewhere. And I didn't listen to him <laughs> and I stayed because I'm not a quitter. Mm-hmm. And I and I saw it through. And I think in the end, exactly what I sort of feared would happen did happen. And, and that was, I got to the end of the internship and I put together my portfolio of work and I thought, well, I'm not really sure this really amounts to anything. And I I don't know that they really knew what they they wanted me to produce at the end of this. And, um, and so, you know, I didn't, I didn't get a full-time offer, which, you know, I I knew was going to happen, but, and it, and thank God you didn't, right. Thank God you didn't because, because it's not the, it wasn't the right place for you. (laughs) So, you know, I, I guess, that that's it's a lesson I learned the hard way because I set myself up full well knowing that I would be disappointed by it. Mm-hmm. But again, you know, I, I guess it comes back to in the end, my parents were really right. You know, it, it, it what came of that wasn't what I expected or wanted, but it's a really valuable lesson because I know that there are moments in life where you just have to say no. It's not the right opportunity, or it's the right opportunity mm-hmm. at the wrong time, or the organization you want to go work with or help just isn't at their, you know, point in life where they can use your help or, you know, so on yeah. and so forth. So it, it really was a, a very good learning moment for me. And, and, and I'm, you know, I don't look back on that with regret. I actually fully value that entire experience and, and everything that taught me. And it was really, you know, one of the side benefits was getting to work in, um, in the UK and in, in Holland. And, I never had that on my resume before. And and that was really mm-hmm. interesting to me and exciting. And I'm really happy to have had that, that, that opportunity. What's something women don't talk enough about? Why are we closed off in a way about the things that really matter the most? Um, mm. Oh, I think, you know, how hard it is after childbirth, I think, to, to come back to yourself and, and, move past that that sort of fog of the first couple of months of incorporating this teeny tiny person into your life, um, finding your footing again and coming back to who you are and, and what matters to you and, um, and, and centering yourself, but at the same time raising, you know, this tiny person. Um, mm. People don't talk enough about the things that go wrong and it's really hard to admit when you're wrong or when you make mistakes. Um, but I think that being more open about those things in, in, in work or in life, um, it, it creates an opportunity for a richer dialogue among women. And, and I mm-hmm. wish that, I just wish that we would get away from the, the perfect veneer that we as women put out there on social media and, you know, face to face, you know, I think it does everybody a disservice because it's not easy. It's not easy to be, um, you know, a full-time employee or, you know, running a company and, and taking care of all of the other people in your life that matter, friends, mm-hmm. um, parent, elderly parents, you know, children, um, their partner. Um, it, it, it's, it's very demanding. And I wish that we could have a more open dialogue with each other about, about those challenges and, how do we overcome them? How, how do people deal differently at different points in their life with those challenges? Um, yeah. There are these 
competing demands on you as a woman, you know, you, if we're fortunate to grow up in a society where if you work really hard, you can have many possibilities in life, opportunities in life, but you have to balance those right with your sort of biological urge to have children and, and have a family and, or, or have children mm-hmm. on your own if you so choose. And yeah. And I, you know, I have a number of female friends who have been at similar points in their life where they think, well, you know, that that's it. And I, I have, I myself have thought that, well, like, could we really have six children? I mean, that seems like we would just sort of <laughs> lose control of the chaos in our house. But, <laughs> they definitely but it, outnumber you at six to two. Six, oh yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, Christmas morning is just total chaos, but, um, you know, but, um, it's, it's never easy. And sometimes it just isn't a choice that you have. Right. And, um, you know, it's these these competing desires and I don't mean competing in a negative way. I mean, the things that, you know, as a woman, you may want in life, um, Mm. So such, such hard decisions to weave together all at the same time. And, you know, I also, I have conversations with female friends who don't have children and they just, you know, and I guess it's the answer. It's it's like breastfeeding, right? Like it's so individual and it's it, very it individual, might not yeah. be right right now. It might be right later, but you might not have that mm. ability later. Um, yeah. and, and, yeah. you know, so for, for me and, and our situation, you know, people sort of looked at me like, you have to be kidding. You're going to have another baby, like six <laughs> children, like, I mean, their eyes pop out of their head. And it's so infrequently that we meet people who have more children than us. But my husband just met someone the other day who has 12 children. Um, wow. and I know, I mean, that that's just, uncommon. These it's days. Like very yeah. uncommon. <laughs> um, yeah. But you know, and I it's funny because I do I do really get looks and I think I get some you know disapproval from some people sometimes. Like that's just too many kids. Um <laughs> but it you know and sometimes it feels like it, right? <laughs> sometimes yeah. I think wow uh, but each one is is such a blessing. Okay. What's an opinion you once held strongly that you've since changed your mind about? It's a tough one. I mean so many things, right? Because if you're not changing your opinions, or I'd, I'd like to think of it as evolving, evolving in your thought process, um, then, you know, and you're standing still. Um, but I really think, and I've thought a lot about this during this presidential race, you know, particularly in light of a global pandemic. I used to think that the delivery of healthcare and health, health insurance through an employer was the right system, a free market system. And I really don't think that anymore. And I think a lot mm. of my thinking comes from... Um, my dad, having served on the uh, healthcare task force back in 1993, when Bill Clinton um, put together a group of people to try to tackle this exact problem, and that was the first attempt at um, expanding healthcare coverage for the uninsured, and it, you know, it ultimately it didn't work. Um, but a lot of my thoughts were shaped um, at that time, watching my dad participate in the task force and, and try to solve this problem on a national level. And I remember my first job uh, when I was 16. I worked at Boston Market, which is a fast food place. Oh, yeah. And I loved, I loved working. It was, it was such a great job because I got to meet all sorts of interesting people. 
Um, but there was a man that I worked with who, who was older and he didn't have health insurance. And he said, I have kidney stones and I have no way of getting treated because I don't have health insurance and I can't afford it. Mm -hmm. And I was 16. And that, I mean, that conversation has stuck with me forever. And, you know, I, I think that how can, how can we provide all of these other things to citizens, um, all these public goods to citizens, but we can't do that. That just doesn't seem right. And I think when push comes to shove, if you have to look somebody in the eye, in the eye and say, you can't be treated because you don't have insurance and you can't pay for it out of pocket. Like, I think if you were put in that situation where you had to tell somebody that you would change your mind instantly. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And then, you know, and, and the other thing about having uninsured um, individuals is it really places a tremendous burden on the hospital system because if somebody comes in for yes. treatment, you can't deny them treatment. And, you know, while there are um, publicly traded hospital systems in the United States, there are also a lot of nonprofit hospitals. And I had a nonprofit hospital client uh, back when I was a banker and and they have to provide care. And, and this comes out of their pocket. And so you are transferring what should be a public burden onto an industry burden and then right. further on a nonprofit <laughs> um, yeah. level. And, and, and how can hospitals survive that, you know, if they're nonprofit hospitals uh, when you have a pandemic and you have to treat yeah. everybody who comes through your door and that treatment is very yeah. expensive. I think it's something around $22,000 in the U.S., her hospitalized COVID patient. That's a tremendous economic burden to transfer to the nonprofit sector. Um, and it shouldn't yes. be that way because I don't think it needs to be. I think we can solve this problem on a national level and make the playing field even for everybody. And when you do that, you will, over time, probably lessen the burden of uh, on the healthcare system and on providers of um, things like disease management. Because of the Absolutely. Disease is treated early on and the patient is managed properly. You have fewer acute cases to manage in a hospital setting. Yeah. What unearned privilege or unfair advantage has been most instrumental to your success so far? I mean, first and foremost, that I was born in America. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm probably going to sound incredibly patriotic, but... I, I am. That's a good thing. I am <laughs> very, thing to be a patriot. very, very fortunate that I was born, you know, to, to two educators. Um, and, and I have had an opportunity to be educated in a public school system. And I later went on to finish high school in a private school. Um, but I mean, just, just the opportunity to, to reach my potential, to be educated, mm. to have access to a public library, to mm. as a woman, to be able to vote, uh, to mm. be able to have a job. Um, you know, I mean, as we talked about, I've, I've traveled to many, many places around the world where women don't have these rights and, and children may not even have access to an education. Um, so right. first and foremost, that I was born here and there is a system in place that if I am so motivated, I can take advantage of and educate mm. myself. Um, and having educators as parents, um, you know, set the bar really high. I had two parents who, it wasn't just that they believed in me, but they expected a lot of me. And, you know, my dad used to say to me, and I just, you know, thought about this quote the other day, because I like to talk to my children about the same concept 
And I think it actually, it has its roots in the Bible, but then JFK said it in a speech as well. Um, it's something along the lines of those to whom much is given, much is expected. And, and that is what I carry with me because that is what my dad always said to me. And I believe that that's why they had such high expectations of me. I mean, they, they knew that I was positioned in life to, to be able to fulfill their expectations. And, and I felt it, you know, they, they at times were tough on me at times were loving. Um, but you know, they, they knew what I needed when I needed it. And I think that really, you know, those two things together, um, are really my, my best advantages in life. And I think having the good fortune of being able to travel around the world and know that that's not the same for every child born in this world. Um, that really is such a fundamental, um, you know, piece of my personal history that I'll, I'll forever be grateful for. Mm. What are you still insecure about? Oh, so many things. I mean, I think, uh, so many things, but, you know, I think a lot about this notion of, um, you know, imposter syndrome. I think so many times I get into a meeting or I go on stage or I'm getting ready for an interview and I think, oh my gosh, this person is going to ask me, someone in the audience is going to ask me something that I'm, I can't answer <laughs> and, and oh, I shouldn't be up here. Somebody else is probably better qualified you know, than I am to do this, um, this, this interview or this you know, speaking spot or moderating this panel. Um, and I think, you know, deep down, probably all of us suffer from a little bit of that. Um, but that's, that's part of being introspective too. Um, recognizing that you can't know everything and that of course, everybody naturally has some deficits in their knowledge. And, and, um, you know, I think it's, it's, it's a challenge to, to sort of have that pattern of thinking, but then go in there and, and look confident um, when you're in front of, you know, an audience or, a, you know, a group of clients or, you know, sitting across the table face-to-face with a client. Um, that's, that's probably in the business world, that's probably one of my biggest insecurities. Mm. When do you feel you're most powerful? <sighs> when I'm running. I'm, mm. I'm a big runner. You're a marathon I, runner. I'm right? a marathoner. Um, I am. Mm. I, I've run nine marathons all over the world and with a hiatus in marathon running all over the world now. Um, it's, it's, I find it hard to train without a goal in mind. So I, I mm. really, I, I enjoy running so much because I really do my best thinking when I'm running. And so therefore the longer the run, the more thinking I can do. Um, and it provides a lot of mental balance in my life, but I also find it really empowering to say, okay, today on my training plan, I'm supposed to run 20 miles, which is sort of for me when I'm training at the peak of my marathon training, I'll run a 20 mile at a time. And I'll do a couple of those in the lead up to the marathon. Um, you know, just coming down the home stretch, finishing out that last, you know, few steps of a 20 mile run or, or actually in a marathon, it doesn't matter how fast I did it. I don't care if I, you know, stopped to take a water break, um, or, you know, had to grab a something to eat because I was low energy. Um, it doesn't matter. It's just that I did it, you know, and it's just, mm. for me, it's, it's been such an empowering thing in my life, um, to be able to, when did you start me. running? Um, you know, I ran, casually in, you know, in school when I was a kid, I was on the track team, but I didn't really discover marathon running until 
I was probably 35. And so I did many marathons in a short period of time, probably too much for my body. Um, one year I did four and, and wow. I found out at the end of the year, that's just too much. Um, not did you have toenails that way? <laughs> I lost a lot of toenails along the way. <laughs> um, yeah, that's, that's a little bit like childbirth. They don't tell you the gross part yeah. about marathoning is that you lose toenails. Um, yeah. but you know, no matter, it's a, it's a small price to pay. It's just been a really positive thing in my life that I discovered, um, when I was older and I just, I love it. I really connect with running and, 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 and actually what I miss so much about marathoning is that esprit de corps at the start line or, you know, at like mile 22 and everybody's like, oh my gosh, it's, it's been so hard and so long. And, you know, you see people on the side of the road cheering for your complete strangers. It's just, it's such a happy experience. What constitutes a me too moment? Oh, well, I think the classic definition is I'll do this for you if you do this for me. And mm. I, I've had those moments. And, you know, in thinking back on those moments, for me, it's been in the reverse order. So someone will do something for me and then expect, you know, I return the in favor. Um, and the earliest instance of that for me was when I was an intern. Um, I worked for a federal agency when I was in high school and then went back the following year. And a person that I worked for, um, I worked in a, a, a small office within this federal agency. And um, the person that I worked with was a lawyer, probably in his late 50s, um, offered to help write a recommendation letter for, for college because I was transferring from one college to another. Um, and he wrote the letter. Um, I have no idea what it said, but I'm sure it was fine because I was accepted as a transfer student. Um, and came back and, and, you know, told him I, I was accepted. I'm, I'm so grateful. You know, thank you so much for being involved in my process. I really appreciate it. And he pulled me aside and he said, well, you know, since, since I wrote you that letter, I just figured, you know, you would go out with me. And I was, I was 19 years old. And this is a man in his late fifties asking me out. And I just came out of left field and it was so shocking to me. Um, but at the same time, almost silly, like, are, is he serious? I mean, mm. it just, it was, and it, it, but it rattled me too, because I was 19. And when that happens to you at 19, you just don't have the resources and the life experience to really understand what it all means and how to deal with it mm -hmm. and move forward. And mm -hmm. the last thing I wanted to do, um, at 19 years old was, rock the boat. I was incredibly grateful to have been offered this internship opportunity by a remarkable woman who ran the office within this federal agency that I worked for. Um, and I thought to myself, well, I, I'm going to, I'm going to deal with this on my own. And, and I actually, I called my mom because she gives great life advice. And, and, you know, of course she echoed this, oh, that's outrageous. <laughs> what was he thinking? And, and I, I actually, took some time and then went back to him and I said, absolutely not. I mean, and I think I probably said to him, I mean, this is years ago, said to him something like, are you crazy? But I mean, thank God, because, you know, I, I almost, it, being so young, I sort of didn't recognize the sort of ripple effect that this could have like beyond me and him if this 
had become more widely known in the office mm. and I handled it with him and I shut him down. And, you know, to well, how did him, he handle that? How did he handle being um, shut quietly, down? quietly? And I think he went away with his tail between his legs um, because I think mm. he realized how shameful it was. Um, but mm. there's a, a certain bit of being so naive and young that actually helped me in that situation because I think he realized I didn't quite fully understand, you know, what would happen if I said yes right? What would happen if I said yes? Um, and so I think in the end, he felt really silly. And that's kind of how I've navigated those situations in life because I mean, they have happened to me. I worked in financial services for, um, for enough time. And, and as we talked about, it's, it's a fairly male-dominated environment. And when you're one of the few women working in an office and you know someone asks you for something inappropriate, which then happened in a, in a big way in a similar way to me as an investment banker. Um, you know, my attitude was, well, this is just a really poor reflection on you for asking me this and putting me in this situation. And I, I think in some way I'm grateful that that happened when it did, because I was able to view things that happened after that in that light. Like, you know, this isn't about me. This is about you and you being wrong and you putting me in a bad situation. Um, and you know, looking back on it in light of the Me Too movement, maybe I should have spoken up more loudly. Uh, but I think that in a, in a way, shutting these people down in the way that I did, hopefully shined a light on how silly their behavior was and how inappropriate mm. it was and how disgusting it was to put a very young woman in a situation like that. And, and I hope that my reaction showed them that so that it didn't happen to somebody else. Yeah. You know, I had a really similar experience at the age of, I think it was 17 or 18. I was working, um, you know, at a bank as a teller at a bank and so naive, (laughs) just so naive, you know, and we were given these targets to, um, we were giving targets to sell credit cards basically, right. To have people, or not to sell the credit cards, but to have at least people apply for the credit cards. And, um, and so, you know, I was really eager, wanting to do my best as always. And, um, and so I took this target really seriously. And, uh, and I would ask everybody, you know, do you want to open a card? And this frequent guest of the bank, um, or frequent client of the bank came in and was like, I, I mean, I can't, I'm looking at it back now. I just can't believe I didn't see through it. It was like, I, you know, I'd like to talk to you about that. Like, let's, uh, why don't we talk outside of the bank about that? Oh. I mean, I'm 17 years old. Like, yeah. I'm trying to sell it. It's crazy, right? And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so, right. you know, he picks me up. Uh, and um, and it was the summer before I started um, college. So, and uh, and he orders me a Long Island iced tea. Oh my God. And I was a pretty adventurous teenager, but I um, alcoholism runs in my family. So I, I really never drank. So I was, even with other things that I did, like I just wasn't, attuned to even what a, you know, I mean, I knew it was an alcoholic drink. I had no idea that it was as alcoholic as it was. And, you know, had one drink and was really not in a good, in a good way. And he really came on, I mean, physically and da, da, da. And I remember just thinking, I I have to get out of here. I have to get out of here. And you know, he's married, has kids, the whole thing. Yeah. And I go home and I um, you know, told, um, told my aunt who I was living with at the time, and and she was like, you know, you'll do the right thing. And, she, you know, she handled it really well. But I went back. This this is the thing that's so frustrating. So I went back and I told my immediate supervisor that the next time I was in, I said, listen, this happened. 
I, you know, I went, I went out because I was trying to, you know, <laughs> meet this target and talk to them about the credit card. <laughs> you know, it's so stupid. And two days later, the bank manager, who was a woman, called me in and said, I heard this thing happen. And here I'm thinking she's going to be like on my side, right? And I'm like, yes, you know, it happened. And she said, I don't want to be rude about this, but I want to be clear about this. You are never to represent the bank outside of these, outside of this room. Oh my gosh. And I remember thinking, oh, I'm in trouble for this. And of course, I'm like 17, 18. I'm still thinking uh, in terms of like who's in trouble, right? Like right, <laughs> the principal's office, you know, I didn't, you know, have, have a lot of agency at that time. And I was, it was really like, how have I gotten, have I gotten in trouble for this? <laughs> you know, uh, but, but that's, um, I'd never let anything like that happen again. You know, I definitely okay. didn't go to my superiors for, for help anytime after that. If, if, if there was something to be dealt with, I dealt with it. Okay, last question, Jenny. What are you really fucking good at? <laughs> um, a, a couple of things. I learned um, how to cut hair, um, and it, it's been a real um, benefit in this pandemic when you can't go to the hair salon. So <laughs> I cut my husband's hair. I cut my kids' hair. Um, I get some eye rolling when I try to cut the kids' hair, but it's a valuable skill. Um, I'm great at Excel. It's, um, I love it. I love working in Excel. It's logical. It makes sense to me. I can model anything for you. I just love it. I'm, I'm so good at it. And I think another thing is totally spontaneous adventure travel. Um, mm. you know, it, before the coronavirus shut down global travel the way it has, um, you know, and I had extra time, of course, before kids, get on Google flights and say, okay, I'm, I, I have three days. Where can I go? Like, what is the cheapest ticket I can buy? And, and where can I go? And, and that's what I would do. I would just get on a plane, you know, with my husband, get on a plane and we would go to places that we, and we didn't plan the trip. We just got on the plane, you know, with a backpack mm. and we figured it out when we got there. And so I have seen some amazing things and, and, you know, gotten through a trip, you know, having, really no idea how to navigate around and I, I can do it on the fly and it's it's really fun and I'm I've gotten very good at it mm, god I can't wait for those days to return I am ready. even if even if we I can't really do that anymore because I'm a parent exactly knowing that like but if I could organize the child care I could, I could. still <laughs> still a freedom that I it's I'm really feeling like we lack now Jenny, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. If people want to learn more about you or Headwaters Volatility Solutions, where should they go? I'm on LinkedIn. It's Jennifer Dowling Rao, R-O-W-E. And that's where I am. And I respond to messages. Amazing. Thank you so so much, Cassandra. Thanks to everyone for listening. If you've enjoyed the series so far, please do subscribe, rate, and leave a review wherever you're listening right now. It really does help put the series in front of more badass women and a few men too by increasing how we rank. While you're at it, check out the show notes for more info on our guests and to find out how to reach us on all the socials. As always, if you've got a story and you want to tell it like it is, I'd love to hear from you.